0: Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This evening we're going to be primarily focusing our attention on verses 21 to 26, but I'd like to begin reading at verse 17 because uh, this is the well-known section of Matthew in which Jesus is preaching His Sermon on the Mount. And really verses 17 to 20 uh, anchor all of the teaching of Jesus that follow. And I will try to help you see how that's the case tonight as we look at this passage together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, this is God's holy Word, so useful for our instruction and training in righteousness. So let's listen carefully to these words. Jesus is speaking here, and He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool! Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Keep your thumb there. We will be turning to another passage or two this evening uh, during the sermon, but please keep your Bibles open as we look at this passage. Well, a minister once um, met with an elderly woman as he was going through and making his pastoral visits, and as he was talking to this woman, she shared with him that he was having difficult, she was having difficulty with her prayer life. She was having difficulty knowing what to say. She, she didn't sense that God was very near to her as she was praying. And she said, worship has been sort of the same story for me. I felt so, so far away from God in worship. And so the, the minister began to ask some probing questions as to why that might be the case. And as he continued to talk to her and ask important questions, it came out that, that she was embroiled in a conflict with another woman in the congregation. And some mean-spirited words had been exchanged, uh, some anger had been expressed, and the minister looked at her in the eye and said, could that perhaps be the reason why God seems so far from you these days. Have you ever thought that there's a a direct correlation uh, between our relationship with God and our relationship with brothers and sisters in the church? I hope you have, because Jesus says there is. He says there is. He says often our relationship with God is, is broken. God seems far from us. Because at times we are murderers at heart. Here Jesus is teaching us about the Sixth Commandment in His Sermon on the Mount. And He teaches us the important reality that all of us have the basic motive for murder, for sinful violence deep within our hearts. And that impulse comes out and shows itself in our lives in various ways. Sometimes it manifests itself as hatred towards one another. Sometimes it takes the appearance of envy, anger, bitterness, and revenge. And our Lord Jesus' goal here in this portion of His sermon is to help us understand what is the heart of the sixth commandment, that in no way whatsoever should we injure our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Certainly not by the the physical act of taking one another's lives, but it goes deeper than that, that even our thoughts and our words can be an act of murder. The good news is that for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law in every way, God promises to empower us by His Spirit, not just to reject murder of the heart, but to live lives pursuing the love of our neighbors at any cost. We're gonna look at that tonight. God's command is it is summarized in Jesus' teaching here. And we wanna focus first of all on the heart of the command. We wanna understand what the sixth commandment is really all about. We wanna notice that part of fulfilling that commandment is is understanding and fulfilling the positive side of that command. Then we wanna notice finally the delightful possibility of, by the Spirit of God, being able to fulfill that command, that rule of love. I read verses 17 to 20 to start with because, as I said, they really anchor everything that Jesus says uh, in the rest of His sermon. Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and He wants to reinforce to them a very important truth. And the truth is this, that, that when Jesus came to earth, part of His task, part of His ministry was to accomplish the law. He came to earth as someone under the law that He might fulfill all righteousness in our place. And so He he tells us that He came not to abolish the law, not to put away the teachings of the prophets, but to fulfill the law in every point. He's also come to teach that anybody who seeks to relax the law, to change God's law, to reinterpret God's law in any way, will come under judgment. They shall be called least. In the kingdom of heaven. What's clear from these few verses is that Jesus is serious about God's law. And not only is He serious about the law, but He alone is the perfect interpreter of the meaning of God's law. And so what Jesus is going to do in His sermon is He's going to place His own authoritative pronouncements or teachings about the law over and against The legalistic teachings of the scribes and the pharisees over and against the misinterpretations of the law from ages past that's why he introduces his teaching this way you have heard that it was said to those of old but i tell you well in beginning this way we notice right from the outset that jesus had a problem With the way the teachers of the law were understanding the heart of the sixth commandment in his own day but what had they gotten wrong what was the problem with the way they were teaching and interpreting and applying the sixth commandment you shall not murder they had said You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But, of course, that was God's command that He had given to Moses it had been passed on to Israel in the tablets of stone. The Pharisees understood that human beings are made in the image of God, that we are precious to God, we are are special to Him, and, and, and He will not allow murder to go unpunished. They understood that. And so on a surface level, there doesn't appear to be any problem with the way they interpreted and applied the Sixth Commandment. And again, we wonder, what is Jesus' problem with the scribes and the Pharisees of his day? Didn't they get it right? Is Jesus being too picky, perhaps? Is he putting too, too sharp of an edge on this commandment? Well, of course, The answer is no. Jesus is the perfect interpreter of God's law. And what did he see? He saw that for the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as for the ancient interpreters of God's law, what was wrong was not what they had said. It was what they had left unsaid. They hadn't taught. They hadn't applied the sixth commandment as fully, as faithfully as they should have. In fact, they hadn't gone far enough. To prevent the murder of a precious human life, because they were simply content to stick with the external superficial meaning of the command. And so Jesus in His sermon, He comes in uh, like a surgeon with a scalpel to engage in in, in spiritual surgery, so to speak, and and He digs deeper to, to, to reveal the spiritual source of the sin of murder in contrast to what others had thought. You have heard that it was said, don't kill a person, don't take their life by killing them unjustly. But Jesus says, what lies at the heart of murder is anger and hatred of one another. We have a similar teaching in the Heidelberg Catechism. In question 106, it says, By forbidding murder, Jesus teaches us that He hates the root, the source of murder. Things like envy and hatred and anger anger and vindictiveness. Even these things God considers to be nothing less than murder. And the shocking reality of Jesus' teaching here is this, that that you and I can murder someone without even touching them. We can murder someone without even laying a finger on them. You might remember in 1 Samuel 25, the wicked man Nabal used mere words when he mocked God's anointed David, and yet his language is full of deadly poison, and he faced the consequences for his murder. In Proverbs 12, 18, we're taught that that reckless words, thoughtless words pierce like a sword. And the sad reality is that some of our friends and our co-workers and our family members have been stripped of their honor, robbed of their reputation. They have watched their futures disintegrate before their very eyes because of things that we have said. Because of slander and backbiting gossip coming from our lips. Words that that we spoke carelessly about another person. Words spoken out of haste and out of anger and frustration to someone we trusted to keep those words quiet, made their way through the proverbial grapevine. Ruining relationships, breaking down trust. Brothers and sisters in the church have grown deathly discouraged because out of envy for their success, envy for the Lord's blessing upon their life, we have distanced ourselves from them and refused to spend time with them, refused to celebrate God's goodness in their life because we wish God was that good to us. These things too, Jesus says, are the destruction of human life. And that's an important part of Jesus' lesson for us to grasp, that the kind of sinful anger which leads to bitter and insulting words, vengeful thoughts, looks and gestures of contempt, by its very nature these things our murder, murder of the heart, and such things deserve God's judgment. Jesus teaches His listeners here in our passage about the severity of such an offense. He uses several examples here of heart murder in verses 22 and following. He says, if anyone says to his brother, you fool, here the Aramaic word is raqa, literally meaning you empty-minded fool, you imbecile. Such a person would have to answer to the 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 Jews, the Sanhedrin, the council. Anyone who says to his brother, you worthless, rebellious person is guilty enough to go into the fires of hell, he says. His point is this, these offenses, whether they are judged by, by a human judge or by God Himself, are the same in their intent. And Jesus says anyone who shows that kind of contempt for another brother is murdered in his heart. And we'll be liable to God's judgment. We may think that such things are trivial, hardly worth mentioning, but in Christ's eyes, they are deadly. And so He calls us to kill murder in the human heart, to find it at its root and destroy it. If you take care of your own lawn, you know that those pernicious weeds like to stick up in the cracks. And it's so tempting after a long day out in the yard to just take that weed whacker and cut off the head. Out of sight, out of mind. But we all know that in a couple days that weed will be popping right back through the crack. Sin is much the same way. We need to put it to death. We need to excise it at the root. We need to understand where murder begins. God calls us to say no. To say no to murder in all of its deadly forms. But we need to recognize that that's only one half of the coin, isn't it? Because by saying no to murder means we must say yes to life. We must say yes to loving one another. And what Jesus says here is quite radical because that yes to life, that yes to loving one another is an aggressive yes. It's not a passive yes. Our Lord Jesus calls us to, to go on the offensive, to, to look for our neighbors, to search them out, to love them actively. We're not simply to spare our neighbors the worst. We're to give them the best. And that's why question 107 of our catechism is especially relevant. It asks us this important question, is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor? in any such way. Isn't that enough to fulfill the command we simply don't murder them? Check it off our list. Well, the Pharisees thought that was sufficient. They thought obedience to the the letter of the law was enough. The catechism makes clear that that is not as far as God would have us go. Is it enough that we just don't murder our neighbor? No, by condemning envy and hatred and anger The catechism says God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, to be peace-loving, to be gentle, to be merciful and friendly towards them. Not just that, but to protect them from harm as much as we can, to do good even to our enemies. The positive side of God's commandment here is not that just we don't murder them physically or with our hearts, but but that we actually love them. With a Christian love going so far as even to pray for those whom we regard as our enemies, why is God so concerned about this? We might wonder. Why is he so concerned that we not just abstain from murder, but that we we put ourselves out there, we we exert ourselves to abide by the principle of love, to search out our neighbors and our family members and our even our enemies, to love them as ourselves, to be patient and peace-loving. I think we can all uh, come up with examples of strained relationships with people in our lives. We wonder, can't we just kind of leave them alone? As long as we don't anger them and and, and speak ill of them, isn't that enough? Can't we just ignore them and avoid them? Why must we so actively love them? What's the big deal? You might be tempted to ask, it's not as if those strained relationships affect my relationship with God, right? Oh, how we are like the Pharisees. We love to reinterpret the law of Christ. We love to relax the intention of God's commandments. Once again, Jesus responds with an answer so sharp, an answer so pointed that we need to take notice. And He says to us in verses 22 and 23 that if we are worshiping God, if we are coming to offer our gift at the altar, and it comes to mind that we know somebody, we know a brother or a sister who has a grievance against us, The command is. It's an imperative. We need to leave our gift at the altar and we need to go. We need to be reconciled. We need to love peace. We need to pursue it. We need to restore as best we can that relationship and then offer our gift. That's the positive side of the rule that our hearts must be filled at all times with love for our neighbors as with ourselves, not with sinful anger and murderous intention. And this is a serious command, and the application of it is something we need to take serious because Christ says that, in fact, if we are trying to bring our offering and our worship to God, but at the same time are failing to love a brother or a sister as we should, at the same time remaining unreconciled with them, our worship will suffer. Our love for God will be affected and our witness to the world will be affected. I'm reminded of what John says in, in his epistle in 1 John chapter 4, he tells us that love for one another is a mark of God's love being in our hearts. He says in verse 20 of chapter 4, if anyone says, "I love God, I'm a Christian," but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he he has seen right before our eyes cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must, must love his brother. And that means for us, brothers and sisters, that if you know a fellow Christian, even thinks they have a reason, To be dissatisfied with you or upset with you, it must be your primary goal to strive to be reconciled with them as much as it depends on you. You must call them on the phone. You must go to their front door. You must approach them after worship and you must say, I sense there's a problem between us. I sense that that there's strife, there's anger, there's distrust. Can we work this out? Can we we pursue a restored love with one another as evidence that we are children of God, lest the offerings of our worship, even the offerings of our lives, are rendered unacceptable to God. We need to seek love. We need to pursue peace before it's too late. The call here is urgent in Jesus' sermon. He sums it up for the crowd in verses 25 to 26. He says, take care of it right away. Don't delay. Don't wait for a time when it may be too late before you have to pay the penalty for being unreconciled. Romans 5, verse 8 tells us that God showed His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a great love we've received. we received the love of God through Jesus Christ at a time when we hated Him, when we despised Him, when we were His greatest enemies. And that good news should compel us to do the same for those around us. Because the only way to positively fulfill the sixth commandment out of gratitude for this great love that has been shown to us in Jesus, is to cultivate an inner heart of love for our neighbors, for brothers and sisters in the church. And that love should be motivated by a sincere desire to see them come to Jesus Christ and know His salvation. Well, the perfect example of such love is modeled in the life and the death of our Savior Jesus. He did a marvelous thing for us. He entered into our time. He entered into our space. He took upon Himself our infirmities and our weaknesses. He embodied this far-reaching principle of love perfectly. When He was reviled and spat upon, He didn't retaliate. During His crucifixion, which He was hung between two guilty thieves, He prayed for His executioners. He did not demand justice. He loved His enemies to death, even death on the cross. He loved you and me, seemingly unlovable people, and He poured into our hearts the love of God. He made us to be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven at a time when we were still blasphemers and enemies. And as those who have tasted, who have seen the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, it's now our privilege, it's our duty, it's our joy to share in the mission of our Savior. It becomes our delightful task to love for and to pray for the salvation of those who may hate us in return rather than murder them in our hearts. Later at the end of this chapter, Jesus says that we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We're called to be complete, full-grown, mature, lacking in nothing in the way of love for our neighbors. And yet, if I asked you to, to bring to mind the most mature and godly Christian that you know, even their love is a faint shadow of the infinite and perfect marvelous love of God. We wonder sometimes, is this command of love, this rule of love, is it even possible for us to fulfill? After all, there's only one man who never had a desire for revenge even when he was being reviled against. There's only one who fulfilled the sixth commandment to the perfect satisfaction of God the Father, whose love extended to the furthest corners of the earth, and that's Jesus. Is it even possible for us? Well, the wonderful hopeful answer is yes, because of this great Savior who is the source of our hope and our power and our strength. The promise of our Lord Jesus is that though by nature we are inclined to hate God and neighbor, yet by the power of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we have been given a real beginning of new obedience in which we can truly love God. We can truly love our neighbors and even our enemies. It may be a small beginning. Sometimes it seems like we struggle so much in this, but it's real. And only by the regenerating, life-giving grace of God are we delivered from our hate and brought into the kingdom of His light. And so I encourage you to pray for that. If this is something you struggle with particularly, speaking ill of a brother or sister in the Lord, thinking negatively of one another, passing down judgment upon one another, and speaking behind one another's backs, if that's something you struggle with, then pray in faith that your heavenly Father would give you the gift of love and keep you from hate. Pray in faith that the Spirit of God who lives in your heart would renew a right spirit in you, that He would take the sword of hatred and envy and anger out of your hands and replace it with a godly love for your neighbor. Because our our promise that we have from God is that as we pray in faith and in repentance, He will strengthen us by His Spirit of grace to pursue reconciliation and peace with those with whom we have broken relationships. And by that same grace, we can fight that old murderous nature that sometimes raises its ugly head. We can, in the strength of God, put on the new man, and we can walk in the light of Christ, our Savior, who once and for all time abolished death and darkness and brought life and immortality to light. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to You tonight confessing that we have all broken Your sixth Commandments in one way or another. We may not have taken a human life, but Lord, at times our speech has been filled with deadly poison and our actions have been a sword of destruction to those around us. So, Lord, the reality is that perhaps we have no idea how many people we have hurt. We have no idea how many reputations we have damaged. We have no idea about how many people we have plunged into discouragement because of the things that we have said, the things that we have done. And Lord, we are convicted by Your Word. You have exposed the heart of murder that takes up residence in our hearts. But, Lord, we are grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ, the One who came to perfectly fulfill the Six Commandments and the Six commandment and all the commands of Your Word in our place, who has borne the penalty for our murder and our hatred and our envy. And He is right now by His Holy Spirit cultivating in us. A new attitude, attitude of love, attitude of patience, of generosity, of kindness towards those around us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to daily repent of our murder and hatred and pray for new hearts to live lives of grateful obedience, seeking peace and pursuing it with those around us. Lord, may our church be a place of harmony, a place where we are able to come together in peace and in unity to encourage and comfort one another in the Lord. We pray that You would remove all problems among us, all disunity, and replace it with a desire for love and peace. We know that You can do this. We pray that You would do it for Your glory and honor.